0: What's behind
1: the decision by the U.S. Treasury Department to suspend sanctions on Venezuela? Is it because of the increasing numbers of Venezuelans arriving at the U.S. southern border, creating a headache for Democrats ahead of elections? Is it because of the ongoing genocide in Palestine that threatens to spill over into a regional war? prompting geopolitical instability throughout the globe. Or maybe the White House finally came to terms with the fact that, for all intents and purposes, it was pursuing the same exact policy towards Venezuela as Donald Trump, and realized that it was never going to produce regime change. You won't be surprised to learn that the answer is yes to all of that and more. But of course there's one more reason why we made it to this point. It was the resilience of the Venezuelan working class that delivered this victory against imperialism. (laughs) Welcome to the Venezuela Analysis Podcast. I'm your host, José Luis Granado Ceja. The Venezuela Analysis Podcast brings you independent, on-the-ground, English-language coverage of Venezuela and the Bolivarian process. You'll hear news and in-depth analysis about the country, as well as coverage of leftist and grassroots forces. On today's episode, we're asking, what's behind the decision by Washington to suspend sanctions against Venezuela? A full answer to that question requires us to look at the class dynamics that are at play. The Barbados agreement between the Venezuelan government and the opposition, establishing certain conditions for the 2024 presidential elections, also represents a realignment of forces inside Venezuela. Inside the country, a multi class consensus has emerged. A majority of the forces with political and economic power in Venezuela appear far more interested in a peaceful coexistence instead of the highly polarized environment that prevailed before. Much of the country's bourgeoisie, seems uninterested in handing over power to a far-right radical like María Corina Machado. Although Washington undoubtedly still wants President Nicolás Maduro out of power, at the moment, the White House has other priorities. Biden desperately needs to be able to convince voters that he's doing something about the crisis on the border. The U.S. also needs to send a signal to international markets that a war in the Middle East won't cause an oil crisis. The key thing to watch for Will be how the Venezuelan working class and campesino sector responds to this political realignment. To talk about these questions, we'll speak with Venezuelan researcher and political analyst Osella Lee Lopez, who talks to us about the motivations behind the U.S. decision to ease sanctions, where the dispute with Guyana over the Essequibo Strip fits into all this, and how recent developments will impact the 2024 presidential race in Venezuela but first a conversation with Venezuela analyst Ricardo Vaz on what the announcement by the US Treasury Department really means where US policy towards Venezuela goes from here and what all this means for the class struggle in Venezuela. Hello Ricardo, good to have you here on the program once again. We're here to talk about sanctions relief. And on the website, we've actually been really careful to call these Treasury Department licenses sanctions relief and not the lifting of sanctions. So I was hoping You could explain this distinction. Why would it be a mistake to view the recent announcements coming from the U.S. as the end of sanctions on Venezuela?
0: Hi, José Luis. Great to be here again. Indeed, we have been very careful to make sure that there are no misunderstandings, and we have called it sanctions relief or an easing of sanctions. And I think we just have to go to to the definitions. You know, when we go back to October 18, what the U.S. Treasury Department announced was not that it was lifting or ending the executive orders that impose all these sanctions, all these restrictions. Instead, it issued licenses that say the, the transactions that were prohibited by executive order so-and-so are now allowed. So it's, it's an exemption to the, to the prohibition and not the lifting of the prohibition. And it might seem like just a technical difference, but in in practice it, it it makes it makes it completely different it means that for example uh, a corporation that wants to deal with venezuela is going to go first to the us treasury department to make sure that it's not going to violate all these all these rules which are very very complex and by almost by by design to make it uh, very hard for for the venezuelan economy and perhaps even more significantly than that Uh, One of the licenses, General License 44, which is perhaps, I think we all agree, the most significant one, which is the one that allows uh, investment, sales um, of of Venezuelan oil and and, and gas, that one has a six-month window, six-month validity period, so it goes to to stress how uh, temporary and limited these measures are, and, and and on that on that note, I would invite people to to go to our website. Just a few days ago, we published uh, an infographic on on these these licenses that the Treasury Department issued about a month ago, and uh, what they allow. And also trying to be a bit cautious, because you know there, there's a lot of uh, triumphalism or even uh, deliberate misunderstanding to say, oh, you know, sanctions are gone. Let's just forget about it. And, you know, even misleading headlines saying, oh, you know, the U.S. lifted sanctions two weeks ago. How come the Venezuelan oil sector is not, is not booming again? So we try to explain that even though there are these exemptions now in place, uh, there are still significant obstacles to, you know, for Venezuela's economic recovery. So, you know, to mention a couple of examples, when we talk about the oil sector, you know, the, the possibility of now exporting crude Again, to, to the United States, uh, even leaving, leaving aside for a second the fact that the Venezuelan oil industry has been very hard hit by the sanction and is not in a shape to just flip a button and, and, and raise production significantly. But even leaving that aside, the, the mere process of a, a US customer purchasing a, a shipment of Venezuelan crude is far from straightforward because the way this used to happen is that the Venezuelan state oil company, PDVSA, or its uh, different joint ventures, had bank accounts in the U.S. financial system, and so a customer would simply deposit the payment in those accounts. However, because uh, in 2019, the uh, then Trump administration decided to recognize somebody else as the, the legitimate government of, of Venezuela, and even though that uh, Juan Guaido led, quote unquote, interim government. No longer exists. Uh, the the Biden administration does not recognize the Maduro government, which means that it does not have access to those bank accounts. They are either frozen or under the control of this defunct uh, opposition parliament. So it's not straightforward for a U.S. customer to simply purchase oil. Have to, uh, you know, go through intermediaries or resort to to swap agreements. So that's just one example. Another one. Uh, one of the, one of the, the measures that was implemented was. Allowing transactions again with the Venezuelan central bank and with the Bank of Venezuela. that's still Venezuela's largest public bank. So we could think, for example, that now Venezuela could regain access to some, I don't know, eight billion plus in, in frozen bank accounts abroad, you know, since the transactions with the account owners are now allowed, or there's a destination to transfer. But you know, we run into the same problem, some of these European governments. Do not recognize uh, the Maduro government as being legitimate, so they do not not recognize it as the legitimate owner of those frozen resources. Also, I mean those resources they might have to go through the u s financial system, and if that's the case, they'll immediately be flagged as kind of illegitimate funds. There's also the issue of creditors trying to seize them. so all, all this just to to illustrate that, even though it was a step in terms of easing sanctions, and we certainly hope that it's going to help the Venezuelan economy in the short and medium term. There are still a lot of obstacles, also also by design, because the the US still wants to to blackmail the Maduro government. There are still a lot of uh, obstacles to sort along the way.
1: Yeah, but still, we're seeing the Venezuelan government, Bedevesa, various joint ventures moving apace, moving forward. And in our next segment, our guest actually argues that the decisions concerning a potential snapback of sanctions, that is the reimplementations of the full sanctions regime, won't be dictated by progress or setbacks on so-called democracy in Venezuela, but instead the global energy crisis. Nonetheless, we've heard White House officials float this idea of a deadline coming soon to restore Maria Corina Machado's political eligibility, having just won the opposition primary. So What's your take? What should we expect when it comes to Venezuela? Venezuela policy from the Biden White House?
0: Yes, this November thirty deadline uh, came as a bit of a a bit of a surprise. You know, I don't really understand why the Biden administration would voluntarily back itself into a corner. But you know, not not to spoil what our next guest is going to say, but but I do believe that you know this easing of of, of sanctions is not some kind of reward for you know. Progress towards democracy, however we want to call it, you know that that would be accepting this premise that Venezuela had a you know a democracy problem to fix, and and that the US of all of all actors would be responsible for that. So it, it responds to the US's own interests, and of course the global energy crisis looms very large. You know when we talk about the ongoing genocide in in Palestine and all the instability in the Middle East, the prospect that you know, the Arab countries might do something, which is it, not on, on the horizon, but, you know, it, it's there. And when it comes to Venezuela, it's not, you uh, you mentioned and it's correct, that uh, PDVSA has moved forward mostly in, in terms of, of spot agreements. So, you know, one time sales and, and, and export contracts, some that have more longer term significance, which, uh, you know, we hope will raise the, the ceiling of, of the whole the whole industry. But. You know, that's, that's of course the the main concern. Venezuela is not really in in a condition to pump a lot of barrels into the market, but we know that this is all very speculative. So it's more of a, you know, what, what the the financial media call a signal to the markets to try and, and, and keep oil prices low and also having a source relatively close by where, you know, when it comes to election time in the U S all candidates are all are, or, or incumbents are, are fearful of, of high fuel prices, so perhaps having a source of, of crude that's very close and that allows more control over that. But I think it also responds to other, other questions. You know, when we talk about this maximum pressure campaign and, and trying uh, regime change, and it was obvious that it's not, it was not going to work. And so the US kind of needed some, uh, some way to save face and, and backtrack and so it needs to, to present as some kind of progress towards democracy. But if we look at the actual agreements that were signed in, in, in Barbados last month, they're very boilerplate, you know, in terms of an electoral agreement, updating the electoral registry, uh, inviting international observation. There's nothing really there that is out of the ordinary, you know perhaps some commitment towards more uh, fair coverage. Of all sides in, 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 in the media in the run up to the election, so, some, some kind of uh, symbolic stuff like that. But I don't see uh, it all going out of the window because of, of Maria Corina Machado. I think the, the Venezuelan government has been very uh, adamant in just pointing to the agreement and saying, you know, it says here very clearly that, uh, you know, political forces are free to choose their candidates so long as they obey the law and the constitution. And, you know, if they don't, they are bar- barred from running, which is what happened to. To Maria Corina Machado, so we, we might see some kind of, um, I don't know, a, a joint commission to evaluate the current candidates that are barred. You know, just something to to buy time. But I don't see the U.S. just throwing everything out the window. They might look for something symbolic, you know, rest, uh, restoring some some sanctions, so long as they do not affect the, the oil sector. And and the other thing that we, uh, the final thing that we have to keep in mind, is that you know. These sanctions remain a weapon for the U.S., and so it may very well be that you know lots of things happen, and the the opposition has another candidate, and the U.S. snaps back the sanctions, uh, you know, a few months ahead of the election to try and uh, you know to use the, the the old the old adage, make the economy scream, and make the 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 chances of re-election for the Maduro government more difficult. You know, all in all, uh, it's not uh, you know to to underline what we said in the beginning, it, it doesn't really respond to any kind of uh, democratic or fair election conditions, just you know what U.S. foreign policy interests determine to be the best course of action at, at, a, at a given time.
1: Yeah, so often when we talk about Venezuela, we talk about the international situation. Obviously, it's important, but I wanted to close with discussion about the domestic situation. And in his most recent contribution, Venezuela analysis columnist Reynaldo Ituriza-Lopez says that the Barbados Agreement, this political agreement around the elections, and the subsequent sanctions easing that the U.S. implemented represents a formation of a realignment of forces. It's a situation that suggests an effort at peaceful coexistence between the bourgeoisie and the Venezuelan working class. And as we know historically, this is not a tenable position. But if anything, it was the resilience of the Venezuelan working class, the campesinos, the informal sector, that delivered this victory against imperialism vis-à-vis sanctions. So, how do you see the class struggle in Venezuela taking shape, moving forward under these new conditions?
0: Yeah, I think we always need to to recall that sanctions were were made to you know destroy the Bolivarian Revolution, to oust the Bolivar Revolution, and in, instead we saw tremendous resistance and you know in terms of, of political organization from below, and actually. It, this is a good time to plug in our recently published book, A War Without Bombs, where we have a final section that's specifically dedicated to grassroots resistance efforts. So uh, concerning what, what, what Reynaldo wrote in, in his recent column, and I, I recommend that everyone read it, it it's not, not, not just uh, you know, this latest Barbados uh, agreement, but everything that had been building up before, there's, there was perhaps a, a paradoxical consequence of sanctions which is that it lowered conflict between the government and the business class. This perhaps is a tendency that precedes sanctions or you know it it, it kind of runs parallel with this increased hostility from the u s because it it made the the business class uh, the the bourgeoisie in Venezuela, which historically has been very dependent it, uh, of, you know on 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 foreign partners, the sanctions environment made life very difficult for them as well. And so it made them more dependent on the government and more willing to, you know, lower the level of, of conflict. You know, if, if we just, you know, uh, rewind a few years, uh, the, the business actor was a very active uh, actor in terms of trying to to ask the government, you know, when we talk about shortages and smuggling and, and all that stuff. So we, we got to a scenario where even the, the most, traditionally hostile uh, business skills like like were very vocal in in expressing something that was pretty obvious you know that sanctions were also affecting them you know from the the small petty bourgeoisie all, all the way to the to the large scale ones and so the 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 government has gone through this path of trying to lower conflict and and trying to bring the the, the business sector on board in some kind of a large scale national alliance to you know fight back against sanctions and and get the economy growing again it has been successful in that sense and it, it's also not innocent you know it's 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 also a way to demobilize what had been a very significant supporter of, of of the hardline opposition you know to the point now where we see these these business leaders really bristle at the idea of of kind of a renewed intense political conflict so which takes us to the other side. You know, this is a very unstable equilibrium. Where does the working class come in? Uh, right now, it's been more dormant than before. These this, uh, protests that had happened to you know demand better wages, and we certainly expect that with an improved economic situation, the you know ser- several officials have said that you know it's a priority for the government to rectify the very low wages that you know have they have tried to uh, compensate with these non- non-wage bonuses uh, through the, the Homeland card. But uh, when we talk about class struggle, it's, it's not really just a matter of where people are uh, located in terms of, of the productive chain, but also how they organize in, in struggle. And I'd just like to bring up a recent episode. Maduro had a, a Congress on the, the anniversary of strike at the helm, you know, this, large, late, this last uh, major political address by, by Chávez, where he says this, you know, Commun or nothing slogan, and he had a large scale meeting with, with communards. And at some point he was talking about the, you know, public institutions purchasing production from communes, how that plan was going. And there were these very loud jeers from the crowd signaling that, you know, state institutions were not doing their part and this led maduro to scold them in public something that always uh, goes down very well with the audience and you know to draft a new a new a new plan to support communal communal production and so in that sense when you talk about how the class is organizing in venezuela there's clear tendency to organize it in the territory and when we talk about the territory we're talking about experiences that even in these very difficult circ- circumstances have found ways to address the needs of the community have found ways to move forward in terms of their political organization, move forward in terms of their their productive capabilities and there you know in this short episode that I, that I was mentioning you know challenging for a bigger prominence in in the Venezuelan economy, creating uh, circuits that are at least partially uh, away from the logic of, of capital so I think that's one place where we should hope to see uh you know class struggle manifests itself you know these popular organizations that have not just survived but also in many ways strengthened themselves in, in this very difficult circumstance and how they move forward in terms of trying to gain a more prominent role and and to you know keep the the struggle for socialism very much alive and and try to fight for hegemony within the very bolivarian camp so that's definitely something i would keep an eye on
1: yeah i couldn't agree with with you more It definitely sounds like there's a wealth of accumulated experience that's going to play a very important role as we see this realignment, this new accommodation of the distinct forces, even within Chavismo, and how the different classes are going to respond to that. Ricardo, as always, it's been a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate you helping us figure out just exactly what's going on when it comes to these sanctions easing.
0: It was a pleasure. Take care.
2: Vamos a defender la paz del país. La estabilidad. La recuperación económica, como hay que defenderla, con la Constitución, con las leyes, con la justicia, y con el pueblo bien informado, consciente y movilizado.
1: In our next segment, we will speak with Ociel Ali López. He is a Venezuelan researcher and analyst who has published numerous award-winning books. He is also the co-founder of Alternative State Television Station, Avila TV. Welcome, Ociel. Thank you for joining us. Thinking about the suspension of unilateral coercive measures against Venezuela, it seems important to remember that these political decisions coming from Washington are a response to the strategic interests of imperialism. It's not like they were suddenly struck by a humanitarian spirit leading to sanctions being suspended. What's the real reason behind the decision made by the U.S. government? How much of a role does the migration crisis at the U.S. southern border play? To what extent does the possibility of the conflict in Palestine affecting oil prices and supply in the international market have to do with this decision?
3: Looking at the case of Venezuela in the last five to six years, since the pressure against it began in 2017, it makes me think of Prigogine's chaos theory. It's often depicted as follows. The flap of a butterfly's wings in Sri Lanka generates a storm in South Africa. When Trump decided to isolate Venezuela, he had the means to do so, and in fact, he succeeded. Venezuela was producing 3 million barrels and had undergone an internal crisis in its oil industry. Internal power divisions had practically disfigured it and weakened it immensely. After that came fracking, and the industry suffered even more than it already had. With the growth in fracking, oil prices dropped significantly. The Venezuelan oil industry couldn't cope with the situation, and it collapsed. Then came the sanctions, which were like stabbing an already wounded man. But it can be said that Trump's strategy to isolate Venezuela was successful. It's important to remember that almost all of Venezuela's allies left the country stopped exploiting its resources. Russia left and China left. No one wanted to confront the United States. Venezuela was left virtually without allies in the oil sector. They were left only with Iran, which alone couldn't prevent the steep decline of the industry. Of course, it was already battered by sanctions and persecution, especially by Elliot Abrams, who targeted any company willing to trade oil with Venezuela. It was a strategy that was successful at the time, but didn't foresee the consequences it could generate. One of those consequences is the migration issue that you mentioned in your question. And it's not just Venezuelan migration. Which has significantly impacted stability in the United States and created a considerable vulnerability for the Democrats. You now see governors from the Texas or Florida border sending Venezuelan migrants by bus or plane to New York or Boston, causing a profound impact. It's not just migration from Venezuela, but also Central America, Haiti, Cuba, and many other countries that had access to cheap Venezuelan oil. The crisis in Venezuela prevented them from continuing to purchase oil. If you do the research, all these countries have destabilized. Central America is not the same as before the Venezuelan crisis. Neither is Haiti, the Caribbean islands, nor Cuba. So there is a serious migration problem, which is unexpected, caused by this butterfly effect. There is a lack of an energy policy for all these countries. They're the ones putting pressure on the U.S. migration system. But obviously, that's not the main issue. We can say the Ukraine war created a new geoenergetic map. The recent Israel-Palestine conflict also raises doubts about the normal flow of oil to the United States and Europe, affecting the entire Western world. It's not a coincidence that the conflict started on October 7, and by October 14, the Barbados Agreement was being signed. It's not a coincidence. Rather than saying there's an energy crisis, there is uncertainty. The future of the energy world is uncertain. If the conflict spreads to the rest of the Middle East, Europe, and the United States will find it challenging to secure their oil supply. This is what leads to the signing of these agreements. Essentially, it no longer matters as much what Maduro may or may not do. seems that the issue will no longer be strictly based on political issues inside Venezuela. Basically, the United States wants a reliable supplier, and Maduro is seen as more reliable than an unstable government in the region. So, from there, what could come is the normalization of trade and oil production in Venezuela in order for it to sell to the rest of the world and try to stabilize oil prices. With all this, the internal Venezuelan conflict loses significance, meaning it loses centrality and importance compared to the need to have a country that produces what
2: it used to.
1: The Treasury Department's announcement was laden with threats. Like a sword of Damocles, imperialism seems ready to reimpose a full economic blockade if they unilaterally decide to do so. Do you think there are realistic chances of an economic recovery in the coming months? Or will Washington instead resort to threats and other legal traps to hinder a recovery, such as interfering in the oil industry?
2: There
3: are realistic possibilities of economic improvement and stabilization in Venezuela, even the possibility of economic growth. Last year, it was thought that Venezuela would have the highest GDP growth in the entire region. And one of the largest in the world, possibly the largest. This is because there is an economy that neoliberals call a quote sound economy. In other words, if there is an economy that meets the parameters of the International Monetary Fund, it's Venezuela. There were millions of indirect layoffs by the state. State salaries, not private ones, dropped from 250 in 2012 to $5 in 2016, even before sanctions were applied against Venezuela. After the sanctions, it remained at $5. This more or less means that it's a hollowed out state, a state with no investment capacity, that is not investing, a state that has muddled its social policies. There's no longer a distribution of wealth because simply there is no wealth. All the economy is driven by private entities. Everything that enters the country, even through the oil industry, doesn't go directly into the state coffers. The state is basically powerless, with almost no room to maneuver in the economy. Therefore, any money that comes in will seem like a lot of money. If we compare it to 2012, it's very little, but considering the situation, social spending, the public expenditure by the state, any extra income or normalization of trade will have a decisive impact on the national economy of course we shouldn't neglect another important element we must remember that in 2024 when there will be a presidential elections in venezuela the u.s presidential campaign will also be underway trump has already started throwing jabs he said when he left he had nearly gotten rid of maduro according to him he left venezuela in ruins and with a weak maduro however it's true that if anyone bolstered the position of nicolas maduro It was Donald Trump with his attempt to intervene. He unified Chavista forces around Maduro. So Trump is already throwing jabs again to win over his target audience in Florida. He likely won't be so radical in this case, because he has already easily won in Florida. Florida is no longer a decisive state in U.S. elections as it was when Bush won, and in more recent elections. In other words, Democrats are no longer competitive in Florida. Therefore, it doesn't seem like the issue of Cuba and Venezuela is all that important. It seems the decisions being made are not about the progress or setbacks of democracy in Venezuela, but are instead driven by the global energy crisis. Seen in this light, the opposition now has very little room to maneuver. The opposition puts itself at the whims of Washington's needs. In the moment that Washington decided it needed oil, the opposition was left hanging. As the saying goes, it has no room to maneuver. No capacity to decide anything. It also lacks the capacity to mobilize that it had in 2017 or 2019. But for Venezuela, the issue is very complex. Venezuela is on the verge of losing the Essequibo region. That would mean a tremendous change in the country's image. It's a shift in the imaginary. There's the image of Venezuela with the Essequibo and without the Essequibo. Since childhood, we were taught that the Essequibo belonged to Venezuela and that Venezuela would never give it away. However, the government currently faces the Kibo issue and faces this challenge or an internal setback as it simultaneously addressed the issue of the opposition primaries. The opposition primaries were very weak. They received a turnout of $2 million according to their account, which is quite probable given their potential. It's barely 10% of the electoral roll. Previously, in 2019 and 2020, they had carried out an internal mobilization, a kind of vote to legitimize the 2015 National Assembly, just as its term was ending in 2020. At that time, the opposition also mobilized, according to their accounts, over 5 million people. So we're seeing a very weakened position that is only mobilizing its solid base of support. The government, aware of this electoral weakness, needs to confront and polarize the issue with this sector of the opposition that is disqualified from holding office. So the problem here is not the opposition. The issue is that this internal situation takes precedence over the serious problem with the Esequibo region. That's why the president of Guyana went to the Esequibo dressed in military attire. Launched a belligerent stance, and the Venezuelan state doesn't respond in the same manner. There are two hypotheses when it comes to this one. One, the government is trying to avoid falling into a trap. The second hypothesis is they may consider the Esequibo lost. Instead, the focus is on comfortably winning in 2024 to maintain power, and the Esequibo issue is subordinated to a secondary question, a second topic. Another scenario. We are preparing to fight and reclaim Essequibo. and The December plebiscite seeks to legitimize the government's actions to recover the Essequibo through armed means. That seems to be the only way to regain control over the Essequibo. Meanwhile, the government of Guyana has already opened the sale of oil on the subsurface in maritime waters that Venezuela has claims over that has not been resolved at the international level. Concerning the question as to whether the United States will intervene or continue to obstruct the sale of oil, well, that will be decided based on the international conflict on geopolitics. The United States and the West, especially the U.S., are interested in continuing to buy Venezuelan oil. They want Europe to keep buying Venezuelan oil. Then not only will they not interfere, but they will contribute to Venezuela being able to once again place its oil in the West. Because what's at stake is whether Venezuelan oil becomes de-westernized definitively, or if Venezuelan oil can continue flowing to the west. The discussion isn't whether Maduro stays or goes. The issue is whether Venezuela can be
2: sold again in western markets.
1: So the opposition has chosen its candidate in a highly dubious process, and state institutions don't seem willing to yield and lift The disqualification of Maria Corina Machado. Considering all of the above, the OFAC licenses, the opposition primary, the economic situation in the country, how do you see the electoral landscape in Venezuela for the upcoming
2: 2024 vote?
3: The electoral landscape for 2024 is uncertain. It's uncertain because essentially in the recent economic liberalization period that occurred parallel to the blockade there was an improvement in the venezuelan economy venezuelan economy became dollarized private sectors grew despite the stagnation or decrease in the state this de facto neoliberalization that venezuela has undergone this dollarization has tremendously affected chavismo's ideological position ideologically Chávez's base is now tightly focused on confronting dollarization and neoliberalism. One could say that the state has surrendered to neoliberal doctrines. What is happening now in economic matters can be described as fulfilling the opposition's economic plan, the same plan they defended during the years they were in opposition to Chávez. It has dutifully been fulfilled. This weakens Chávez's most electoral forces and might allow an atypical opposition candidate to surprise Maduro in the election. This has been evident in recent elections. In the regional elections of 2021 compared to 2017, Chavismo lost 40% of its voters. If we extrapolate this to the presidential elections, we could say that almost any candidate could defeat Maduro. So the government's political strategy, which is essentially to revitalize Maria Corina, a candidate who's already disqualified from office, seeks to repolarize the country with the revitalization of the radical opposition. This is an attempt to sideline more moderate options that could mathematically, with some ease, win presidential elections against Maduro. Of course, this is always understood in the context that the opposition winning presidential elections means they would be governing a country with a national assembly dominated by Chavismo, with public powers also dominated by Chavismo, as well as the armed forces and the oil industry. In that hypothetical case, we would be talking about a constrained president with very little room for maneuver. However, Maduro's entire bet is, of course, to stay in power. And this diametrical clash with a disqualified candidate is about repolarizing between anti-Chavismo and Chavismo in order to coalesce their base.
2: Thanks
1: so much for joining us, OCIED. That's our program for today. For more on the issues explored, check out our last episode, number 19, A War Without Bombs and Communal Resistance, our latest dispatch, Burying the Monroe Doctrine, and episode 12, Truth and Myths on Venezuelan Migration. One final note. I always suspected that the White House would eventually lift sanctions against Venezuela before the 2024 election there. Biden's Latin America policy appears to be mostly driven by his senior advisor, Juan González, a Colombian-born academic who made his career working inside the Beltway. He is very much the product of Washington's academic-slash-think-tank ecosystem. Gonzalez consistently told media outlets that he sought to make his mark on sanctions policy. He wanted to prove that these neocolonial instruments could, according to his logic, serve to promote democracy in the world. The Barbados Agreement gave him the perfect excuse to say his policy worked. As we've seen in this program, this is hardly the case. Nonetheless, it would be a mistake to claim that the sanctions easing came as a result of the decisions of one man in the White House. As Mao famously said, imperialism is a paper tiger. It is threatened by the material developments in the world. Imperialism cannot defeat the Venezuelan working class. The people in charge in Washington are being forced to contend with the consequences of their hubris and are scrambling to find a way out. The class struggle in Venezuela, indeed the world, marches forward. Be sure to visit us at VenezuelaAnalysis.com for regular news and analysis on all things Venezuela. We're also everywhere on social media, from Telegram to Instagram and, of course, Twitter. If you enjoyed the program, please share it with your friends. We'll end today's episode with the song A Palestina by Gino Gonzalez. Palestina, te
4: canto pueblo ancestral
1: Palestina,
5: sobreviviendo en la fe Palestina, de un antepasado que están por nacer
4: palestina tan pacífica nación
5: palestina soporta un odio tan grande palestina condenada sin razón palestina aún exterminó con Los despide también, con las raíces al viento y el territorio en la piel. Entonces, ¿quién puede ser dueño de tu nacimiento? Palestina, repeliendo los espantos.
4: Palestina, cuando son las evidencias.
5: Palestina, contundentes como el sol.
4: Palestina, te palpita la.
5: al viento y el territorio en la piel entonces quien puede ser dueño de tu nacimiento